0: Good morning everyone and welcome to Stocks and Coffee with the Stock Geek. I'm Travis your Stock Geek. Today is Friday, July 15th, 2022. We are finishing up the week here, headed into the weekend. I hope you finish your week strong. Cheersing you here with a nice full glass of cold brew coffee from Tiny House Coffee Roasters. Checking in on morning markets, we do see stocks starting the day positive, up over 1% on the major indices. Crude is stabilized and is up about 2% today. Copper down just a little bit. It's going to finish its sixth straight week of declines here, most likely. On the government bond yield side, we see yields pretty quiet. And we see on the metal side that silver is bouncing back slightly after a horrible day yesterday, gold not doing much after its bad day yesterday. Checking in on individual early gainers and losers, Pinterest is up about 15% today on news that Elliott Management, an activist hedge fund, has taken a stake. They could be looking to push for a board seat as they did at Twitter, or perhaps pushing for other changes. Pinterest has had about an 80% decline in the past year, So, obviously, there's potential there for improvements, I'm sure, although we just recently saw CEO of Pinterest, co-founder and CEO Ben Silberman, step down from his role, and he's being replaced by Bill Reddy, who was a former president of e-commerce at Google. Uh, Other early gainers this morning include some of the bank stocks. Citigroup up almost 10% today. Wells Fargo also up. Both of those banks reported earnings this morning, and we'll talk about those a little bit. The other early gainers and losers on the loser side, we see solar stocks such as First Solar, Sun SunPower, Sun Power, Enphase, etc., showing pretty broad weakness down between 5 and 10% on the news that Senator Joe Manchin is pushing back on including climate change measures in any of the Senate spending packages. And then we also see Chinese stocks losing pretty broadly here this morning, many down 5 6% on the GDP news that came out of China, showing that GDP actually shrank quarter over quarter. I will say, however, the Chinese are preparing a pretty big government stimulus package, which should be rolling out shortly. Uh, of course, they're also still having their zero COVID policies affecting their economy there with uh, rolling shutdowns across the country. So a lot of volatility there in the Chinese economy. Other major morning news, we saw the June retail sales data come out in the U.S. That showed an 8.4% year-over-year increase in retail sales, and that was also a 1% month-over-month growth. That was above expectations. It is likely that obviously some of that gain does reflect price inflation, but overall it was still positive, even excluding gasoline and auto data. Consumer sentiment also came out. That improved slightly from June. Uh, Interesting to see that, and some of the measures of consumer expectations for longer-run inflation were down a little bit. We saw JP Morgan come out with credit card delinquency data. It's still very, very low, frankly, and it's down in June from May, so we're not yet seeing the consumer credit uh, issues pop up. We're not seeing any rollover in consumer credit performance yet, at least from the big banks. Um, On the earnings side, like I mentioned, we did have a big banks report this week. We'll have even more next week with Bank of America reporting next week and a few others. But we had JP Morgan yesterday. We had Wells Fargo and Citigroup today and a few other regional banks as well. Uh, Wells Fargo showed revenue down 16% year-over-year, of course, on weak banking revenues. Also, some declines in the mortgage side of the business. Uh, They do expect to see credit costs increase, but they're not seeing it yet. So that very interesting uh, note there. And they, are, of course, are going to benefit from higher net interest income going forward as well. But there is potential weakness still in you know, some of the mortgage areas and banking areas. Uh, so Wells Fargo results, I would say, pretty mixed. Uh, the numbers themselves weren't especially great on a year-over-year basis. But the market, I think, was expecting a little bit worse. And so the stock is rallying about 6 7% today. Uh, Wells Fargo trading just above its tangible book value. Citigroup also reported revenues up 11% year-over-year, a little bit better, obviously, than Wells Fargo, but had some weakness in the banking area offset by some of the trading revenues, which were quite strong. EPS was down about 27% year-over-year, but again, was above expectations. Uh, And Citigroup trading at only about half of its tangible book value, uh, so it's up 10% today on beating the earnings expectations uh, United Health also reported earnings. The big health insurer revenues were up 13%. They beat their earnings estimates and they raised their annual guidance. So the stock's up about 3% on that news. So health uh, health insurance and healthcare overall uh, could be an area of strength here, even, even in a, a weakening economy there in the U.S., um, on deck for next week, of course, we have a lot more corporate earnings coming up. We have companies like Netflix, Tesla, Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Prologis, Charles Schwab, Lockheed Martin, j United Airlines, AT&T, Capital One Financial, Dow Chemical, Freeport-McMoran, Snapchat, Twitter, American Express, and, and many more reporting earnings next week. So really a big kickoff in the earnings reporting season for Q2 earnings. It'll be very interesting. We'll be covering as many of those as we can in depth on the macro side, next week, we'll also get June housing start data. We'll get inflation data out of Canada, the UK, and Japan. We'll get retail sales out of the UK, and we'll get some global manufacturing PMI data as well. Uh, yesterday, you know, stocks had actually been down pretty heavily initially in the day. They ended the day m- mixed. You know, There was a pretty big rally in the NASDAQ. The Russell still ended down. The small cap index ended down about 1% still, so uh, that was interesting to see. We had the cannabis stocks perking up yesterday on news of a possible introduction of a bill in the Senate to de- decriminalize marijuana. but, you know, some of that has faded today as that bill is unlikely to pass, at least in its current form. Uh, we also saw on the back of good TSMC earnings, Global foundries was increasing. Um, but we did see weakness across, you know, continued weakness and new lows across some of the energy and mining mining and metals sector yesterday. Um, TransOcean has about a billion and a half of debt coming due in the next two years. It's been seeing a pretty big stock hit here recently as some of the deep water drilling activity doesn't seem to be improving quickly enough. To, <laughs> they may face a, some sort of a debt restructuring at some point if they don't see pretty rapid increases. But uh, it will be interesting to see the debt at TransOcean trades for, I think, like 20, 25 or 30% yields to maturity, which is pretty high, indicates you know, a lot of pessimism still about the overall business. Um, Like I said, we also saw new lows in companies like Barrick Gold and Freeport-McMoran. We saw some new lows even in some of the tech stocks that have been weak, like Match Group, uh, Magnite, some of the ad tech players, uh, Pubmatic, and a few others. I think what was driving some of the weakness in the ad tech sector yesterday may have been that news that Netflix is going to be partnering with Microsoft and not other ad tech players for its ad-supported tier. I do think the ad tech sector could be an interesting area to dive into here on the stock side. Trade Desk, Pubmatic, Magnite, a few others are down over 50% year to date. And some of these stocks are actually trading at below market multiples now. I think Pubmatic trades for something like five and a half or six times EBITDA, for instance, you know, these businesses are still growing 20% plus given the strength in connected TV and streaming services, which are seeing, you know, increasing activity on the advertising side. And of course, digital advertising generally continues to grow. So I I think there might be an opportunity here. Trade Desk does trade at a premium to the sector, still, like 20 or 30 times EBITDA, given that they, sent, they tend to dominate the buy side of the digital advertising platforms, uh, meaning that they serve you know the long tail of advertisers, whereas a lot of the other ad techs are supply side providers like Pubmatic and Magnite, and they serve publishers or companies that have ad inventory to serve. Anyway, uh, I think an area I definitely need to get smarter on could be potential here with those stocks down a ton. Circling back to the bank stocks, one thing I want to point out before I forget is that there's a really wide disparity between European banks and American banks in terms of their trading multiples. Uh, even after the weakness in bank stocks in the U.S. here recently, we see, you know, J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, Wells Fargo still trading at a premium to tangible book value. But when you look at banks, global banks like Credit Suisse, Deutsche Bank, Citigroup, they're all trading at at significant discounts to their tangible book values. Especially the European uh, money center banks like Deutsche Bank and and Credit Suisse, which are which are starting to trade down to like multi-decade lows in price to tangible book values again. I think Credit Suisse is at something like 0.3 times tangible book value, and Deutsche Bank is now down, again, to about 0.2 times tangible book value. So either we're headed for a bank crisis, or those stocks are starting to look really cheap. Uh, Now, the European banks have not had exceptionally great returns in recent years, but those stocks are taking quite a, a huge hit here on the recent energy crisis and economic crisis that's been emerging. So uh, very interesting to see that. I I was getting into a Twitter battle yesterday with somebody about J.P. Morgan here on the U.S. banking side because J.P. Morgan – had to suspend their buyback, and there were a few people saying, oh, you know, this is just another company with bad capital allocation. They were buying back stock at higher prices, and now they're stopping the buyback when the stock is cheap. Well, the reality is JP Morgan's capital allocation, I don't really see as an issue. The reason that JP Morgan is having to suspend the buyback is because the Federal Reserve is increasing the stress capital buffers that JP Morgan has to build over the next year, year and a half. So JP Morgan is at, I think, around a 12.2 times, or I'm sorry, a 12.2% Uh, CET1 ratio. That's the tangible common equity to risk-weighted assets. And they need to be at about, I think, 13% by 2023 to meet the new stress capital buffers. So basically, since the great financial crisis, the Federal Reserve and other banking institutions have ensured that the banks have to keep building credit ratios higher and higher because they need to have capital for a rainy day, essentially. They don't want another a replay of the great financial crisis where the banks didn't have enough capital and you know the whole system almost ended up going down, which is fine. But the problem is that the Fed and other institutions keep increasing the capital buffers that they're requiring of these banks – which is very frustrating because it means those banks you know, can't use uh, capital to pay dividends or, or buy back shares uh, the way that they would want to. And so uh, J.P. Morgan will have to spend the next two or three quarters taking the capital that earns its earnings, essentially, and letting it build up on the balance sheet. Now, J.P. Morgan still does pay a dividend. In fact, they've been increasing their dividend every year for the last eight or nine or ten years. So it's not like they're not paying dividends or not being shareholder-friendly. And the other thing is J.P. Morgan probably will buy back stock when they can. It's just that the Fed is essentially forcing them to stop their buybacks in the near term. And J.P. Morgan was buying back stock last year at less than 15 times earnings. So, again, I don't think you can make the case here that they had bad capital allocation and that they were buying back stock at super high prices. Sure, in retrospect, those prices are higher than where the stock trades today, but you know, again, I don't think they were making a bad financial decision buyback stock at less than 15 times earnings, which is less than a market multiple. So yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any reason to um, single out JP Morgan as a, a bad share buyback example. I think there are way worse examples out there. I mean, here, to give you just a, an example, we had that announcement this week that uh, Unity software would be buying the iron source ad tech provider, And as part of that, they're going to be doing a $2.5 billion buyback to try to reduce the dilution impact from that acquisition because the acquisition is being done with Unity shares. But the problem is Unity is not really a super high cash-flowing business and hasn't really been trading at a, a low valuation multiple. And so having that buyback, which is funded by increased debt, is not really the best use of Company capital, in my opinion, so that would be an example of a buyback. I think you can actually make a critical case against. But in any case, that's my rant. I just think that you know we have to single out the companies that are that are really doing buybacks poorly and not beat up on the companies that you know are doing things that are out of their control. So that that's my spiel on what's going on there on the banking side. And uh, I do think that it's going to be interesting to watch the bank stocks here over the next several months and quarters just because you know, either they're going to be the canaries in the coal mine for the overall market and economy, or these are gonna be opportunities to buy back cheap stocks that you know are potentially gonna be weathering the storm with higher capital ratios and you know, going forward could end up producing positive returns over a long enough timeframe. Well, I had a listener ask me to do a deep dive into Walt Disney Company, or better known as Disney, ticker symbol DIS, And I've been diving in a little bit over the last couple days. It is a company I've been familiar with in the past, and it's a really interesting one. You know, the stock's down over 50% in the last year. Um, the question is, could it be getting cheap? You know, there's a lot of moving parts to the story. Disney owns a bunch of theme parks. It owns the streaming service Disney+. Plus. It owns uh, ESPN and some other content channels. It owns Marvel, and it makes movies. And uh, frankly, it's it's got a lot of moving parts, and there's a lot of complexity. So that's what makes it, I think, a little bit tricky. The big questions, the big story here, I think, is what do you believe about the future economics of Disney+, Plus and also the cable businesses, particularly ESPN. The parks business will continue to, in my opinion, improve its economics post-pandemic and improve its earnings. It's continuing to recover. It's still not quite at full capacity yet. So that business produces, you know, nice positive earnings when it's in normal mode and it's been anything but normal over the past couple of years. But we do see that improving a lot recently, um, particularly through the first six months of this year. The real question, though, is what do you believe the value of Disney Plus is? Even though they now have, I believe, over 100 million global subscribers, the business is burning cash, and there's a question about how much content spend do you need to have to support that business every year. The other thing is ESPN. You know, ESPN gets a ton of revenue from cable networks, which we know are slowly losing subscribers over time. There's a lot of people who want to see Disney take ESPN and put it into the Disney Plus or into some subscription packages for online. But then the question is: There, did the economics change? You know, once you stop getting these high fees from the cable providers, can ESPN support enough of a subscriber base to continue to generate the profitability it does uh, with the current, you know, linear cable business? And so there's a there's a question about transition. What do the economics look like as Disney transitions all this content over from? You know, cable and getting paid by others to owning it and having to spend all the content and all the infrastructure. Uh, so, there, that's a big question. I do think, you know, you have to take a longer term perspective on some of this stuff, although the market may not. So, that may be where we have a disconnect between what the market wants to see in terms of current profitability and what the ultimate economics of these businesses will look like longer term. Of course, we also know streaming has increasing competition, increasing content spend among competitors like Netflix, Warner Brothers Discovery which owns HBO, HBO Max, et cetera. Um, one nice asset, of course, that Disney has in addition to Disney Plus is Hulu, and they've been an early adopter of the, an ad-supported streaming model. Uh, that business has grown pretty well and pretty nicely over the last few years. So there, there's a lot of assets here. You know, Of course, Marvel, of course, the Star Wars franchises as well. I have had some questions about the long-term of the Marvel franchise, frankly, you know they may have peaked at some at some level with the uh, Avengers a couple of years ago. You know they're moving into the next phase of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but I think uh, there's been some questions about how strong this next wave will be, and can they maintain the enthusiasm for Marvel the way that they had it? You know, last decade. Uh, that's still a question in my mind. You know, I think ultimately they've got. Uh, some pretty unique assets in the portfolio, even outside of Marvel, that perhaps could continue to drive strength. But, you know, are Marvel and Star Wars old news? Or are they going to be embraced by the younger generation still? That's, that's a question that does have to be answered. But from a financial perspective, you know, diving into the different segments and projecting them definitely have to do some more work. I will point out that, you know, Disney trades for something like 17 or 18 times 2023 estimated earnings. So today, at today's price of 92 bucks, 93 bucks a share, you know, it doesn't look that expensive, um, especially if you believe that the economics are less than they would be because they're making these heavy content investments in the short run. So, you know, what looks like 17 times 2023 earnings might actually only be like 10 times the actual long-term earnings that they could be earning from these businesses. So that's, um, I think that's worth pointing out. Now, could this stock get cheaper? For sure, especially if the cash burn, gets worse on the streaming side in the near term and that would be the concern is figuring out when when does cash flow get you know max depressed from the content investment investments they're making and when does it start to really improve and come out of maybe the the shorter term trough Um, and that I think is is really what we have to to try to figure out now the analyst estimates do have earnings and EBITDA and those types of numbers improving still over the next couple years at a low 20 percentage rate, or perhaps even a mid to high teens rate, depending on the estimates. So I mean, like, look, if you look out at 2024 estimates, the the midpoint estimates like 650 of earnings per share at a $93 share price, you know, that, that would put Disney stock today at about 14 times earnings multiple, which would certainly be, you know, below its longer term averages. So pulling up a historical graph here, you know, pandemic skewed things for sure. But if we look pre-pandemic, uh, let's see here. The price to earnings multiple that Disney would typically trade at would be, you know, as high as 20 or 22 times and maybe as low as around 15, 14, 15 times. So this was all pre pandemic levels. So it did get, you know, post pandemic to some pretty high multiples as Disney Plus launched and things like that. But if we're in a more normalized environment, you know, I think a 15 to 20 times earnings multiple is not crazy for a a global business like Disney that has, you know, a lot of brand strength and a lot of interesting assets in the portfolio. So we can cover this more in depth, but uh, that's kind of the general thoughts there. And let me know what you think. Let me know if you've got any insights. Let me know what other stocks you'd like to uh, see me check in on here on the podcast. All right, y'all. Well, we're going to wrap it up there. I hope you have a great weekend, and I will see you Monday when we kick off a very frenzied Q2 earnings reporting season. Cheers.